For the third year and counting, Richard Skipper has been celebrating the artists you love. Richard Skipper is all about celebrating life, art, and his guest body of work. Please join us while he showcases these diverse and talented individuals. Here's Richard Skipper. Happy Tuesday, everyone, and look at how uh, fuzzy I am tonight. I am telling you, there's a storm here, and I have been having all kinds of trouble, but I can fix this. Bear with me one second here. I'm going to go to adjustments. Maybe I'll look better with the Lucille Ball uh, uh, focus uh, thing there going on. So we're going to get myself focused here, and there I am. Uh, after all, I can't look as great as my guest tonight. I've got Robert Patrick waiting in the wings. But anyway, I want to thank you all for being here tonight, and thank you for your patience. Uh, we've had a major storm here today, and everything that could possibly go wrong, I thought Mercury retrograde was over, but it waited, and it's hovered over my house today. But not to wait any longer, I have the incredible Robert Patrick waiting in the wings. He just had a birthday. There you are, Robert. He just had a birthday and he just moved and his plays are still higher than ever. And we're going to celebrate his life, his career, his body of worth. I am so thrilled when he said yes to me. So, Robert, I always begin my shows by asking my guest, who or what are you celebrating tonight? Well, you know, I was a little worried because usually an interview is to promote something, to promote a show or a book, and I had nothing specific going on, but two young theater groups threw surprise parties for me, and here's the, uh, there's the giant birthday card I got at one of them, and they showed uh, a movie an unknown movie of Kennedy's children as a birthday surprise for me. And it went so well, we're thinking of taking it to La Mama in New York. Uh, wow. with Ian, and producer Ian McKinnon. And another group, uh, a, incredible young people led by a, a very determined young producer named John Pratt, uh, took me our, just a moment, I can show you, Yes. All right. I'm going to turn my camera around and show you. Can you see? They're doing four one. They're doing an entire season of my one acts. Wow. Okay. On Sunday afternoons at five at the Silver Lake Lounge in California. So that was a thrill and a surprise, as you can imagine. Just a moment, I'll get, I'll get back in sync with you here. And uh, it's just been a, an incredible 85th birthday. And uh, I cannot tell you how much I ate. <laughs> this, is my new, this is my new apartment. Uh, it's in the same building where I've lived for 29 years. But they, they decided I, I shouldn't have to climb the stairs anymore. I'm going to ask you a very personal question. I hope you don't mind. Oh, okay. Okay. Are you dyslexic? Because you said 85 and I would think 58. <laughs> Aren't you sweet? <laughs> so I, uh, think it's on, 
I think it's unethical of you to use this review format to try to seduce me. <laughs> well, th that's what this show is all about. It's all about celebrating you. Robert, you were so much a part of the New York uh, theater scene, and especially the very beginning of uh, gay theater in New York. Um, I came to New York in 1979, and I worked with I, you know, John Glines. Uh, oh. I did, uh, several shows with the Glines uh, early on in my career. Um, but I want to talk about the journey that led you uh, to New York and that beginnings for you. Uh, I know that you started out, I mean, your family, from what I understand, your parents, you traveled a lot as a kid. Am I correct? They were migrant workers. Yes. And <laughs> with your parents being migrant workers, did you feel that you had the stability of a home life or did you feel that you were always on the, on the move? Oh, we were always on the move. There, there was no, nothing like a home uh, till, uh, goodness, till I was a senior in high school. The first year I went to one school for a whole year was my senior year of high school in Roswell, New Mexico, of all places. And that became home. Uh, when people ask where I'm from, I say Roswell. Uh, but uh, we, we, we lived all over Texas and New Mexico and Kansas and Colorado and Louisiana uh, as mom and dad hunting for work. And when did you first realize that you had this gift for writing? I don't know that I, uh, it, it's, it's complicated. I never thought of being a writer because I never thought I could do anything. I was very, very, I think my parents thought I was a little simple-minded. I would sit in a corner looking at the light on a spider web and for, forever, you know. I wish we'd had digital cameras then. I could have shown them what I was seeing. Uh, you might say that I had an artist temperament with no knowledge of art. Then, but when you were looking at this uh, spider web, mm -hmm. were you creating in your mind's eye a whole scenario built around that spider web? I don't think so. I think I was just blankly absorbing material. And then in one of the tent camps that we lived in, the manager of the tent camp threw out some Life magazines in 1941. And I, I, I took them and I saw my first Salvador Dali painting. Wow. Cadmus paintings. And I realized I'd never seen a painting, you know, and I saw my first movie, Boomtown, with Clark Gable and Lana yes, uh, Turner, yes. because they showed free movies for the workers in the woods. So they had a sheet stretched up between trees to show it and uh, all that sort of thing. But it wasn't uh, when we finally settled and I got to see movies and when in Roswell, there was a library. Mm -hmm. Carnegie Library. God bless Andrew Carnegie. So I, I discovered books and uh, uh, poetry, literature, history, Western literature, really, and movies. Wherever we went, there were movies. And that that's my classical culture, movies and comic books and magazines. Until I discovered, in the library, I discovered the whole you know, great panoply of uh, Western art. And the first time 
when I was 12, I, I always, seems to me this happens with a lot of artists. I hit puberty and I started writing. There's a definite connection. So what type of writing were you doing? Were you doing journal my writing? My mother ran a restaurant with a jukebox. And those were the great days of jukebox. Yes, right? yes. Uh, and there were a lot of songs which were the titles of movies, like Picnic or From Here to Eternity or Wild is the Wind. You know, they, they, somebody made a movie called Wild is the Wind and somebody wrote a song, Wild is the Wind of My Love for You. So I started thinking, well, what if they made a movie called Time and Tide? And walking around uh, Clovis, in Mexico it was, all alone, I wrote my first song, Time and Tide, Wait for No Man to Say, complete imitation of the jukebox sings, but I picked up the skills. And similarly, my first day of college, I was sitting uh, uh, up in the grandstand of the football field all alone. I was just wandering around exploring the campus and I was sitting there and to my great surprise, I wrote a poem. I read lots of poetry. I knew Edna Millay and Emily Dickinson and W.H. Auden and all of them. And I wrote a poem. It's six lines. I can say it. The sun always rises. The soft rain will fall as if your heart never had broken at all. And rainbows will glimmer soon after the rain and someday your heart will be broken again. Tall mountains may crumble, straight rivers will part, but never will nature take note of your heart. And I, I spontaneously wrote it, and that, you know, I said, oh, I could ride, I'm a person, they were people, people ride, I could ride. So I started writing poetry fiendishly, thousands of pages of uh, college poetry which of course made I paid no attention to classes at all and left school under a cloud because I was stealing plates out of art books, got caught. Uh, I was I was so unsocialized. Uh, well, it, that brings me to my next question. I mean, do you have brothers and sisters or are you an only child? I had two beautiful sisters who uh, uh, married young and uh, were never seen again, as it were. No, I mean, they were around, but their lives became very early, their families, their husbands and children. And mama worked. Uh, uh, they were all perfectly wonderful. They just had lives and I didn't. Now, you said that you were... Where I came from, where I came from, it wasn't just wrong to be gay. It was so wrong that it was never mentioned. I never learned to be ashamed of being gay because the subject was too dreadful for anyone even to tell me there are gay people, don't be one of them. Mm -hmm. so I skipped shame. I skipped gay shame because I read Auden. I read Isherwood. I read Catullus. You know, I knew Sappho. I knew about these things. I said, oh, that's what I am. But I, I got beat up in grade school, junior high school, and high school, not for being gay, but for carrying too many books. Because not only was it wrong to be gay, it was wrong to have any kind of sex. All sex was evil. It was wrong to be bright. It was wrong to be artistic. I mean, I was on three counts. I was out of the running as a human being. And it all got pretty crazy. 
And I actually at one point had myself put in the insane asylum, the state asylum. I went up to them uh, and uh, I said, I, I think there's something wrong with me. Every, it can't be that everybody else is crazy. It must be something wrong with me, right? Mm -hmm. And they, they had a law that they had to take you in. So I spent two weeks in the asylum uh, in, in New Mexico. And at the end of two weeks to the second, they said, get out of here. There's nothing <laughs> wrong with you. Just move to a larger town. Wow. And, and, so, and so I, I, I moved to Albuquerque. That wasn't large enough. So I wound up in New York. I went to I want to talk about that. How did you wind up in New York? I got a, I was working in Albuquerque and Santa Fe, dishwashing, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, I, I got a job washing dishes in Kenny Port, Maine, Summer Playhouse. Wow. They sent me the bus fare and I went up, had a wonderful time, learned that I could do things because they took complete advantage of my being stage struck and I did everything. I built scenery, I ran box office, I acted, you know, everything. I, I was suddenly stage struck at 24. Huh. And I stopped off for one day in New York to see Greenwich Village, where the artists are in all the movies. The first half hour I was there, I followed the first long haired boy I'd ever seen a beauty named John P. Dodd, who was walking down the street selling jewelry. And I followed him into a tiny little cafe called the Cafe Chino. Yes. It turned out to be the first off-off-Broadway theater, the first gay theater, and the lodestone of my life. Uh, I, I carry this, I wear this little photo of its door. Uh, I'm, and I never left. You know, 30 minutes in there, and that was enough. They were incredible people. I've written three books about it. You can read one of those. Oh, yes, absolutely. So when you walk in there and you you walk into this room, did you feel uh, immediately that you had found where you belonged on this planet? Well, I knew I found where I wanted to be. I, I, I think there was something wrong with me mentally. I had no self-image. I had no thought of myself. I didn't think of myself much. I didn't plan to do anything or be anything. These things I did, like writing poems and songs, it's automatic. Uh, I love the Chino so much, I stayed in New York. I got a job, a typing job, uh, five blocks from Chino at Macmillan Publishers. And at five o'clock every day, I'd run out of Macmillan, tearing my tie off, run into the Chino and say, anything need mopping, shopping? Need a doorman, need a waiter. And they say, well, yeah, sure. And I think they just barely noticed me, but I was handy. I was what I call a temple slave. There was never any, nobody ever hired me. Nobody ever paid me a penny. But I was there for whatever they needed, including acting. Oh. If they, you know, they, uh, so I, I saw, I, they were just the most marvelous people. Gay, intelligent, artistic, devoted to the arts. Um, it was like being in All About Eve or or Moulin Rouge, you know. Oh, absolutely. And, and I very uh, the names 
people like Sam Shepard and Lamford Wilson, who came out of the Chino, won Pulitzer Prizes. Uh, Billy Hoffman was nominated for a Tony for his play As Is. Uh, John Guare, I think, was won or was nominated for a Tony. The playwrights that came out of it were amazing. Well, you, know, you mentioned earlier that you felt growing up you know, uh, in Albuquerque and elsewhere that you had no self-esteem. When did I you begin? It wasn't just self-esteem. I mean, <laughs> but when did you begin to feel a sense of self at uh, Cafe Chino? Well, this is a very sentimental story. One day, I they called me, uh, when, I, when I first went in, I was wearing from summer stock a yellow hoodie, what we call a hoodie now. Yes. And so they called me Yellowbird. Yeah. Or once they found out my name was O'Connor, that's my real name, mm -hmm. there was a woman in 40s movies who played servants named oh, Una O'Connor. Yes. So they called me Una or Yellowbird. So one day I went in to the Chino as usual, and uh, Johnny Dodd, the lighting genius, who was also the waiter, was up putting lights up for a show and he said, Joe, I'm not going to have time to do this and shop for pastries. And Joe Chino, back behind the coffee machine, yelled, that's all right. Bob can do it. And I was so thrilled that they knew my name. Wow. And what's more, they took me for granted. I was part of the Chino. And that's the first moment I ever remember feeling. I, I understand what you mean about self-esteem. And often when I try to tell people about my childhood, they say you had a self-esteem problem. But I try to explain it. It was different. I had a self-problem. There was this whole world, and I wasn't really in it. And suddenly, Joe knew my name. So you become a part of this world. You yes. acclimate yourself in this. When did you... When did your gifts as a writer start to Well, again, I had never, it, it never occurred to me that I could write a play. These playwrights were fantastically wonderful, beautiful creatures to me, and the actors and the directors. But I did see great plays for three years that I was there. And, and there began to be other places, too, like La Mama and A Judgment Church. There was a lot of off-off-Broadway to see. But I, everybody lived with me sooner or later. I had a regular employment. I, I'd always had an apartment. I paid my rent. So anybody who came wandering into the Chino was likely to live with me until they got their bearing. So Lanford Wilson, the Pulitzer Prize winner, uh, probably America's greatest playwright after Tennessee Williams, lived with me when he first got there. And... Uh, Lamford wrote on our kitchen table. So one day we were moving the furniture into the play for Lam into the theater for Lamford's first play. It was called So Long as a Fair. God help us, there's not a copy of it existing, but it had a brilliant ending. A shy boy kills a girl who's trying to seduce him and folds her up in a fold of bed sofa. It was a brilliant moment. And God, you should have seen her when she came out for her bow. But we were moving the sofa into the theater, and they had built a little stage for it. And the, so Lanford and I and everybody were going out for lunch, 
And I turned around, the director and stage manager of the play were on the stage, standing on each side of this folder bed with a light behind them. So they were just anonymous silhouettes. And they were un they wanted to make sure this self worked. They didn't want the girl hurt, you know. Yes. So they were unfolding it, talking about it, folding it back up, talking about it, unfolding it. And I suddenly knew who they were and why they were unfolding and folding back the sofa bed and what they were saying. And I got an idea for a play about a gay man to whom some friends send a straight boy passing through New York to spend the night. Right? Mm -hmm. Eventually, a sofa bed unfolds and they talk about it. But that's just a tiny moment in the play. You know, but that was what inspired us. I knew who they were. I knew what they were talking about. That these creatures rose up in my mind alive. Like I was in the sea creating life in a tide pool. Yeah. So we did, I, I took the play in to Joe one afternoon and he was sitting and talking and I went and said, Joe, I wrote a play, you should do it. And he took it from my hands and tossed it over his shoulders into the garbage. He, he didn't said, even look at it. You're be a playwright, Bob, you're a good guy. Playwrights are terrible people. You'll thank me someday. Oh. So I said, oh, okay. And that would have been it. Except Lamford and Tom Ian and Paul Foster, the three star playwrights of the place at that moment, happened to be there. And Lamford said, Joe, now stop that. You should do Bob's little play. He works hard here. He, he pulls his own weight. And Joe said, no, I'm not. he's too nice to be a playwright. And Lamford looked at Paul and Tom said, if you don't do Bob's little play, none of us will do plays here ever again. Wow. And Joe said, well, um, I didn't know you brought your troops, Bob, here. And he reached up and got it out of the garbage and shook the coffee off of it and said, but you'll be sorry. I guess he was right because I turned into this narcissistic monster. <laughs> but uh, do you I mean, realize Lance knew the play, that, knew the play that, was good. That, I was living with him. He read I, it all. I think about these moments. Uh, in our lives that where everything changes on a dime. I know. Had it been a moment where it has just been you and Joe alone. Yeah. Uh, your whole life may have been different. Yes. Fact, because if Joe, if Joe had told me not to write plays, I wouldn't have written plays. That they were there for you. I and did what I was told. <laughs> that is and as it turned out, the play... The reason I'm Robert Patrick instead of Robert Patrick O'Connor is the play turned out to be quite a hit to everyone's surprise. Now, I, I happened to play the lead, uh, the host. And when Marshall Mason, <laughs> I, I mean, I had Marshall Mason to direct my first play. You know, it's yes. world famous now. Uh, when Marshall went to have a poster made, he called me and he said, how do you want, do you want to be listed as, as Robert O'Connor altogether? I said, no, oh, but everybody at the theater knows me as Bob O'Connor. So use that as acting. And then for, as author, you, oh, use my first two names, say Robert Patrick. 
and I became Robert Patrick. And it behooved me, the play was such a hit, it behooved me to keep that name for, forever after. But if I'd known that I was picking a name for life, I would have picked something much more dramatic. I always wished I had chosen Dominique Camerlane. <laughs> Isn't that a great name? Absolutely. Well, did this change the way that Joe looked at you? But once well, it became I, hit? Know, I, I did plays once in a while. I kept doing everything. Joe made me the doorman at the Chino. Uh, he bought me a, a West Point jacket and a um, gaucho hat. And I, as the place got more popular, we actually needed a doorman with reservations. So Joe made me doorman. But playwriting was just one of the jobs I did there. That's all. I also did plays elsewhere. Oh, I know that. Uh, but Robert, can we go back for a moment? If you can describe for those who don't know what that world was like, uh, where there weren't a lot of gay plays uh, at that time. Oh, there were none. Uh, there were none. Uh, and to do something so groundbreaking. Uh, yes, I time, kind of left that out, didn't I? I mean, breaking glass ceilings, you truly were. Yeah, Lanford's first three or four plays that he did at Pacino were, one, brilliant. His, his talent showed at once. I called him the Mozart from Missouri. Mm. But his fourth play was The Madness of Lady Bright, which is a monologue for a drag queen going nuts on the telephone all alone on Saturday night. And it was brilliant. I mean, you, you should read it. It's, it's just the magnificent monologue writing. And a great actor named Neil Flanagan played it. He wound up playing it 500 times and winning an O before it. And suddenly there was such a thing as gay theater. Because this wasn't, I mean, although it's very funny, this wasn't ridic the ridiculing some pathetic gay person like like Lillian Hellman did, or, or the other play, plays that had homosexuals and tea and sympathy. This was a piece of gay theater about a gay person. And my play, The Haunted Host, was about a gay guy who is locked up for the night with a straight boy that has been sent over to spend the night at his house. You know? But he so says, The Haunted Host, was that your first big breakthrough play? That was my first play. And uh, somebody that I think we know was in that play. Who was was Harvey Firestein? Oh, Harvey! Harvey loved it. Harvey did four productions of it, mm -hmm. but that was uh, twelve years later, yeah. 12, 14, 15 years later. Oh, it, it, it's been very, very successful. The when we when it's fiftieth anniversary came a few years ago, people did it all over the country. And I went to Palm Springs to see a production there. And this, they still do it. You know, if you write a good play, this isn't such a thing as dated. If it's a good play, it isn't dated. No, no more than Shakespeare plays are dated. If you write, if you write about human relationships, it doesn't matter if they use cell phones or, or regular phones or smoke signals. It's about- Well, people. I'm so glad that you said this because this is a big issue that I have a, a big issue with, uh, with people saying you need to modernize it for oh. today's audiences. And I, you know, why not? I mean, we watch movies that they don't change, obviously. I, know. Um, 
I'd like to get your take on this whole idea of political correctness in the theater and all these changes that people are making to accommodate today's audiences. Well, their idea of accommodating today's audiences is to pander to their political point of view. And like, for instance, to take a, this isn't theater, it's movies, but Gone with the Wind. Somehow they think the world has improved if they take away Gone with the Wind because it shows black people as being the slaves, as being rather backwards and silly. Well, that it happens that the two slaves the woman wrote, wrote about were backward and silly. That isn't making a statement about black people or about slavery. It just happens that it was written before there was sensitivity on that subject. That's all. Uh, like, my God, the way Hamlet talks to his mother, you know, as if her, her duty was all to her husband and not to her own happiness. I'm surprised that feminists haven't demanded a ban on, on Hamlet. Of course, one, oh dear, there's so much that needs to be said. We are dying, among other things, from a lack of common culture. Yes. There was a time that at least, at least the white people in America all knew the same songs, had seen the same movies, had studied the same books in school. You know, we could talk to each other, make a joke based on some popular movie, and the person we were talking to knew the source, and, and there was this, you know, uh, everybody had read the Bible. So you could use phrases out of the Bible, and people knew what you were referring to. It was a short handed way, a code. You know, a culture creates a code among people. And now they they don't they don't want to teach the old culture, the, the artifacts of the old culture. And I can understand that, but they're not creating new common culture. Mm -hmm. I went into Skylight Books, a wonderful bookstore. I said, you know, for 30 years, I haven't read a book or seen a movie hardly. I'm out of touch with, with American culture. Can you recommend five major authors I could read right now to get someone in touch? The boy said, you mean like, like Hemingway or Agatha Christie or Truman Capote or James Baldwin? I said, yes. He said, no, there is no one. There are no great popular writers. We have bestsellers, but they're all niche, meaning there's a, a, a case over here full of books for Palestinian transvestites poetry. And the only people who write it are Palestinian transvestites. And the only people who read it are Palestinian transvestites. But it may sell very well. It may sell to every Palestinian transvestite in the world. Mm -hmm. But, and there's, and there's white, White, white senior gay men books. Well, you bring up a very interesting point. I've always felt that for me personally, I look, for example, at MTV. And I think mm -hmm. that MTV was uh, one of the biggest disservices to the music industry ever. Oh, and really? my reason for that is that MTV was geared at a very specific demographic. 
when mm. MTV began, they would not even allow black artists to appear mm. on the show. So an entire generation of people grew up listening to only one type of music. I grew up at a time where I heard my contemporary artists being played on the radio with those from my parents' generation and my grandparents' generation and beyond. Because radio stations played everything. And we got away from that. And everything now, I mean, I listen to Sirius XM radio and every channel is a niche audience. Yeah. Um, on television, every channel is a niche audience. TCM, um, they don't show a lot. I mean, none of Mae West films are shown on TCM. There are many yeah. artists that, uh, because they don't own the rights to them, I get that, but people grow up and it's the same films that they see over and over and over again. And they're looking at classic movies, but they're only seeing a small portion of those classic movies. Yeah. Uh, there's a whole genre out there of playwrights, movies, music, that people are not being exposed to. Well, I just, in it, there's always inevitably between generations a, a gap. The, the new, each new generation wants its own heroes, its own music, its own movies, its own books. Uh, now, I suppose, its own digitalized limited series on Netflix. So nobody can see everything, but there used to be a basic core culture that, you know, you read Mark Twain, you read Emily Dickinson, you read Walt Whitman in school. Everybody got it. Uh, now, of course, if, yeah, I, one wish you say would add, uh, Rupert Brooks and James Baldwin and uh, uh, Fran Lebowitz to the basic core, but that everybody got the basic core. Mm -hmm. So that uh, you, it, it used to be, I don't know, usually if you said of somebody, oh, he's a real Huck Finn type, they knew what you meant. Knew exactly what you meant. Now they don't want to read Huck Finn because they feel that the, the black character is is mistreated well that then will be true but they could point that out and still read hot thin and have a discussion about it huh and you know look at it and have a discussion about it like they uh you know what capsized culture is where they yes. around and pushed over the statues glorifying confederate generals all over the south mm -hmm. Or north, wherever you know, they people got to push them over. Now, granted, there ought not to be glorification of these people who fought to keep other people enslaved. But isn't it part of history the fact that at one time those people were glorified? Absolutely, evidence I, out here. I'd Look, rather, I would careful, say, if you're not careful, they'll make heroes out of people who oppress you. Right? That's true, and it's happening right now. Well, yes, uh, but I just mentioned that is one. I wrote a, I wrote a poem as I do about everything. <laughs> Talked about how eventually they've got to realize that the, the pyramids were built by slaves, and where are we going to find free men to go push them over? It seemed funny when I wrote it. 
Well, anyway, getting back, we never <laughs> set out to start gay theater, nor were we conscious when Langford wrote Mandis Bloody Bride and I wrote Haunted Host, which we wrote, by the way, <laughs> at the same kitchen table. I was working days and would come in and write nights. Langford was working nights and we used the same table for days. So we wrote the two, what are called the two first gay plays at the same table. Uh, and where is that table today? <laughs> I wonder. I, well, I could tell you stories about that apartment, but just to wind up, it was basically off off Broadway was fairyland. It was like being a member of the Impressionist movement in painting, or oh goodness, uh, the uh, the, the surrealist movement in writing. Mm -hmm. we, we were we were very aware that we were like those people, that no one had ever done what we were doing, which is, and I don't think people realize this is the difference between theater then and now and ever, ever after. Theater had always needed the approval of a lot of people and it needed a lot of money. You couldn't have unpopular theater or you wouldn't have it, or it wouldn't be produced. Right. But at the Chino and other off of Robert places were a cafe, coffee house, a bookstore, a church, a bar, a gymnasium, a bowling alley, places that made their living from something else and did not need the plays to be successful or popular or approved by critics or, or ratified by the clergy. You know, we could do whatever we wanted. And that was the first time that's why I say we were like the Impressionists. What happened in the other arts in Paris in, in, in 1900 happened at the Chino in 1960. Theater became, for the first time, a responsible, free, independent, expressive art form. And it's changed not only in content, like with gay theater or, or feminist theater or black theater, but in form. Mm -hmm. Uh, directors like Tom O'Horgan, who produced Hair, learned their craft at the Chino and La Mama, because uh, we should talk about La Mama. Uh, Ellen Stewart. I mean, we have to talk yeah. about Ellen Stewart. Joe Stewart. Joe Chino. <laughs> Joe, Joe Stewart. Of the Cafe Chino, if you came in and said, I want to do a play, would say, here's my floor. Do what you have to do. And people would build a stage or shove the chairs aside or whatever. Ellen Stewart at La Mama, and this really was the principal difference in them at the start. If you came in and said, Ellen, I want to do a play at La Mama, she'd say, here's my floor. What do you need from me? Because she believed in life, one should have a push cart. Not for oneself, but for other people. And she, made, she was a successful clothing designer. And she made La Mama her pushcart. So she would she would rent bigger places when people wanted to start holding acting workshops. She'd rent a bigger place. If you needed scenery, she'd find some way to buy lumber for you. Or not that they were elaborate productions, mm -hmm. but whereas I'm sure Joe would have done all that if, if it had occurred to him or if it had made it ask. But Joe gave us the floor and freedom. Ellen gave us the floor. And an even greater freedom. Eventually, people that I, people tend to make saints of these people. 
And I think it doesn't hurt to mention that beautiful Ellen Stewart, who became one of the primary producers of gay theater, was a wee bit afraid of it at the start. She told Harvey Fierstein, honey, you got a great talent, but try doing it without the bloomers. <laughs> so it took Ellen some years to, to become used to what she had helped unleash on the world. And I, I can tell you many stories about both her and Joe. Joe, uh, basically what happened was, I guess you could say in shorthand, what killed the Chino was success in drugs. And the two came together. They'd always been drunk. I mean, it's the 60s. Everybody was doing drugs. Right. Uh, ass and speed everywhere. Uh, some more than others. Uh, I may have written the first comic play about LSD. It's called Cheesecake. <laughs> you know, wrote it for a review at the Chino. But we weren't thinking, oh, I'm writing the first such and such, you know. But at the Chino, the drugs got heavier and heavier, and then success hit the Chino and La Mama. They became famous. Uh, Ellen and Joe became the first people from off-Broadway off to win an OD, which was one step up, but a big step in people's consciousness. People start at, shows moved from off-Broadway off to off-Broadway and Broadway, like Dames at Sea and Hair and Godspell and all of these things, you know. Uh, People became famous like Lanford or Tom O'Horkin. Uh, and so people started coming down to do plays who were only after success because they'd heard, oh, you know, this successful play came from there. Maybe I can do it. And they were, they were not the same kind of people as us who had wandered in and, you know, sort of stepped into theater and got stuck. Uh, and Joe, if there was a major difference between Joe and Ellen, it would be, I think, that people wanted Joe to love them. I don't know what it was, his big brown eyes or what, but the moment you met him, you wanted him to love you. Mm. People loved Ellen. You know, it was a, so it's, it, 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 it's, there's more difference in that than there sounds. But I know exactly what you mean. One of the ways that all these strange people tried to show their love for Joe was by competing to see who could give him the most drugs. And his lover had died, and Joe was in a good condition to be seduced into anything. And the work was getting harder and harder, and uh, it was all getting crazier and crazier. And one night, two devoted Chino worshipers, great artists, both confessed to me after Joe's death that they, because they loved him so much, had each, not knowing the other was doing it at a party, slipped acid into his drink without telling him. God knows what he was already on at the moment. He was in deep depression because of his lover's death and because some of the people were drifting away from the Chino. He went back to the Chino and he killed himself most horribly with a butcher knife. Oh my God. And as I say, these people came to me later and said, you know, I just wanted to give him a happy time. But maybe he would have done it anyway without their contribution. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, a couple of people tried desperately to keep the chino going. And uh, what really happened was that nobody was Joe Chino. And besides, there were a hundred off off Broadway theaters in New York by then. You know, the Chino went on. It goes on today. These mm -hmm. kids who are doing my plays at Silver Lake Lounge, they know about the Chino. They ask me, is it like the Chino? And I say, it is as long as you keep going. Uh, the people at uh, Planet Queer at Akbar, where I often sing, uh, are in their own way an offshoot of Chino and La Mama and off of Broadway. Helen, Helene Udi, the TV star who was on Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman, mm -hmm. is my neighbor. And every month in her beautiful front yard, Helene puts on a review called Vasistas, a very uh, uh, unpredictable review, of, uh, which I also sing. Uh, that's a funny story. I left New York in 1990, pretty much uh, burned out. Everything was fine. I had a dozen theaters willing to do any play I wrote. I, I kept my troupe working all the time. We had great success, great crowds. I was burned out. And if you've never been burned out, it's hard to explain to people. It's not tired. It's not unhappy. It's burned out. And I retired and came to LA and pretty much vegetated for 20 years. Wow. Was it an easy transformation for you? It was easy or hard. I was sort of back to that thing from my childhood of just, I didn't exist or matter. And then some young people here who had studied my plays in school looked me up and talked me into being in a show or two of theirs uh, at a wonderful place run by Jason Jen called Spirit Studio. And the character had, I said, sure, why not? The character had a song. Well, I'm no singer, I thought, but I could sing a little song in a play. Well, to my and everybody's great surprise, I got a standing ovation for the song. And then a wonderful woman named Lori D'Amato uh, and a little woman named Jane Contillion told me, you're out Lori of D'Amato, I knew Lori. Lori. Yeah, she just... Lori, Lori, Lori told me, you are a singer. Don't let anybody tell you different. And she gave me a lesson. She wanted to give me free lessons but she got a lot of money for giving lessons. And I said, I can't pay you. She said, all right. She gave me one lesson that has seen me through and I keep working on what she said and I seem to get better all the time. I loved her. I never dreamed of singing, but it's, or performing, you know, being a performer, but boy, that applause is great. And I know the harder I work and the better I get and the, the better singer I am, the more applause I'm going to get. So I keep working at it. Well, I do want to ask about uh, one play of yours, and that's Kennedy's Children. Yes. And what inspired you to write Kennedy's Children? And I, I was walking around one day putting up posters for a play in 1972 or three, which I'd been doing for 10 or 12 years. It's, it's what I did, you know. I did plays and I put up posters for them. And I went into Phoebe's bar on the corner by La Mama uh, 
to put up a poster. And there were a few friends of mine there, uh, some, you know, some theater people, some not, and not many of them. They were all sitting separately. And I chat, said hello, and they kind of waved at me. And uh, that's not what I expect of my friends. That's not usual in Phoebe's. That isn't usual in my life. And then I began to realize people are kind of getting like that, aren't they? So I got a Coke and I sat down and watched. And I watched them as they sat there brooding over their drinks or looking up at the ceiling and thinking and, you know, like like people do who are unhappy. And I thought, my God, this is, they're doing monologues. They're doing internal monologues. And I felt a play in the air, but I didn't, I thought, but, what is the play? You know, it's, it's, I don't write like Beckett. I don't write a bunch of people sitting statically doing nothing. And the bartender was, it wasn't a busy afternoon. He was leaning against the bar with the remote for the TV. And it was on with no sound on. Mm -hmm. And he was clicking from channel to channel. And there'd be news, sports, talk show, uh, nature show, children's show. And it suddenly hit me. That's the play. We switch from each other's ongoing monologue back and forth, back and forth, back, forth, back, 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 forth, back. You know, and that was the play. It was really interesting. It's one of those times when you can actually tell the moment when you got the idea. A lot of plays, you don't start with an idea. You start with a voice or a character. Or a Did joke. it just flow right out of you? Because, I mean, it's a, it's a brilliant... Kingdom of Children was... Uh, uh, usually, I'd sit down, I write my play, start to finish, and that's it. Kennedy Children took a little work because of two things. One, I didn't... I had been in the military, but only for two weeks in peacetime, and I got kicked out because I was gay. I didn't know the soldier's life. And I didn't want it to sound invented, but I met a girl who showed me letters from her lover in Vietnam. And from those, I was able to get into the character of Mark. In fact, I wrote Mark's section first, the drugged out soldier, mm -hmm. and called it a bad place to get your head. Mm -hmm. And we did a couple of productions of it to make sure that it had reality. And the other thing that took some time, although I could have done it faster, was the sex goddess, the aspiring sex goddess, Carla, who Shirley Knight, Shirley Knight got a Tony for playing yeah. Broadway. And that was composed of three girls, a girl named Jenny Lanson, a girl named Connie Clark, and a girl named Cedar Lipinos who came to three different ends, but I put them all together. Connie, especially, have we got a minute? Oh yeah. Connie was a beautiful redhead. I wish I had a picture to show you. And her brother was a playwright at the Chino and elsewhere. And he and I were casual lovers. So I saw a lot of Connie, we were friends. And one day after I hadn't seen her in a play for a while, I ran into her on the street. She said, I'm working now, Bob, I've got a job. I said, oh, what you doing? She said, well, come with me. She was selling 
ads in the menus of, of fancy restaurants should come to you and talk to you to find an ad in Sardi's menu. Hmm. And she also talked the restaurants into advertising in each other's, you know. Anyway, we went into a, one place, a, a nightclub. It was afternoon, but they were cleaning up and ready. We stepped in and the maitre d' looked up and said, Miss Clark, we haven't seen you forever. Oh, my dear. The humor and hugged her and she said, I know, I don't get around much anymore. I'm here to, you know, take this brochure and call me if you want to talk about it. He said, of course, darling, oh, you're the loveliest girl ever came in here. Well, and I looked at her. She said, you see, Bob, there used to be a world, a business world built on girls. She said, I was a girl. I was in that world. Men called me and sent cars for me and took me to beautiful places and fed me well and bought me jewelry and flowers. And, and uh, it was all a dream world and, and it's gone now. She said, there aren't girls anymore. Wow. Well, that's all I needed to finish Carla. <laughs> so in those two characters, it did take some. The school teacher, Wanda, is me. Simple-minded, baffled by how unhappy people are around her and trying to hold on to the, the good of Kennedy. Um, Barbara Montgomery did a fantastic yeah. job you know, on Broadway. And all the men, uh, <laughs> there's uh, uh, people ask, Kennedy's children uh, affected the people whom it affected. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't a success, big flop. Uh, but it affected the people whom it affected very differently than most plays. It meant a great deal to them, not only as an entertainment, but as something they felt talked about and to them and i wrote so I, I get i get kind of assaulted sometimes by people who want to talk about kennedy's children and i wrote a play which there's a beautiful video on on youtube called hello bob and it is 22 characters talking to the audience you you the audience play bob and these characters talk to a recently successful playwright who's written a play and it's opening on Broadway and it starts with a bum on the street that knows him from the old days. And <laughs> you got you got a quarter. You know, what you doing dressed up so warm? <laughs> and goes through the play and the, the, the critics and audience members and the people who inspired the play and the people who's trying to get to play the play who don't they don't want anything to do with it and then he does what i did he leaves he drops out of the whole success trip and becomes a speaker in schools i spoke they tell me in a thousand schools universities and drama festivals over wow. the course of 10 years they would uh, a rich school in california would offer to fly me there from New York, and I'd say, no, no, no. 
don't lie to me. Buy me a bus pass on Greyhound. And on the way to you, I can stop in at a lot of poor schools that can't afford me. So I was able just to crisscross the country. I was in every state in Hawaii. And I'm, I met hundreds of marvelous people and kids. Some, some of the kids went into theater, they said, became. But I felt I just wished somebody like me had come to my school to tell me, you know, to uh, even if, to warn me <laughs> about what I was getting into. Or, that, or in my case, to tell me, no, you're not just as a, a void. You can do it. You can do it if you want to, you know? So that's what I tried to do. I'm told I've succeeded to some degree. And then I wound up burned out in New York in 1990. Well, Robert, I want to tell you, I can't believe this hour has flown for me. Oh, uh, I, I just love you so much. I have been a fan of your work for so long. And when I saw that it was your birthday uh, a few weeks ago, I wanted to reach out and say, let me celebrate you a little bit more by having you come on the show and have other people get a chance to see you as well. Uh, a lot of comments tonight. People love you as well. Oh, really? uh, so yes, a lot of people love you. Uh, so no may doubt. I say, may I say just one thing real quickly? Yes. Uh, one, there are a lot of my plays on YouTube. Look for Robert Patrick play complete. There are videos, a different quality videos, but if you are indeed interested, there, you know, Kennedy's Children is not on. It was for 10 years and nobody watched it. Uh, but there are many plays of mine. There are songs, there are poems. Look on YouTube, Robert Patrick Play or Robert Patrick Song or Robert Patrick Scene, you know, and you'll find them. And also, these kids who are threatening to do this whole season of my plays, I'm flattered beyond belief, as you can imagine. Mm. But I also tried to talk them into doing some of the other very early off-off plays. So that may become something you may want to have uh, John uh, Pratt, the vigorous producer of these, on your show sometime. Oh, I'd love to, uh, absolutely. And I'm gonna have all that information on my YouTube channel so that people can look it up and check it out. Um, I'm gonna have my closing remarks, Robert, and then I'm gonna leave the screen and I'm gonna give you the final word tonight. Uh, anything oh. that you want to say about anything that we talked about, anything that we didn't talk about that you wish we had, or just any message you want to leave everyone with tonight. Uh, don't worry about how to end the show, because as soon as you say goodbye, the credits will roll. Uh, but wait a moment. I'm going to give my closing remarks. Um, I want to thank everybody for being here tonight. Uh, it means a lot to me. Uh, Natasha, Pam Stubbs, it's good to see you back. Uh, Danielle, I know you had to leave early, but uh, Sherry Callahan, uh, Alan Choi, all of you, I love you all so much. It means a lot to me that you show up uh, night after night after night and that you're here and that you help me celebrate these great artists. Because to me, it's about celebrating a person's life, their career, and their body of worth. As always, if you get a chance, please go to YouTube, leave a comment on YouTube, share this with your friends, and please tell other people about this show. Um, it's great that we're all here, but it helps if we expand our audience. It means the world to me that you're all here. So thank you. I always end every show by telling everyone to go out and do something nice for somebody else without expecting anything in return. Go to your Facebook friends list and reach out to the second name that pops up and reach out with a phone call. 
not an email message, not a text message, not a private inbox message, but a phone call. Tonight, when you make that phone call, say, did you see the interview with Robert Patrick and Richard Skipper? And let them know about this show. And then send it to them so that they can see it. And that will also help build our audience. Um, I have... I, a dear friend, you know, as I always say, don't do it with an email or inbox message or private message. That phone call is important. Um, I do want to take a moment. Uh, Loretta Lynn passed away today. And I'm a huge, huge, huge fan of Loretta Lynn. Uh, that was an interview that I never got. Uh, but her music, I sat and I listened to her today. I listened to some old interviews. And wow, this is a woman who literally came from nothing and created the most magnificent career. So rather than mourning her, let's celebrate the gifts that she gave all of us and that she will continue to give. Her music will live long uh, be after we're gone. When I was a kid, uh, my parents had the Loretta Lynn Christmas album. And every year when that Christmas album came out, I knew that the Christmas holidays were coming. So she was very much a part of my childhood growing up. And uh, so Loretta Lynn, I dedicate this show to you tonight. Uh, I'm going to leave the screen now. And as my dear friend Sean Moniger always says, we're all in this together, but we're not in the same boat. And as you all know, I say, if you're going to go out in that boat, make sure you bring a skipper along. So Robert, it's all yours. Thank you. Well, I'm not prepared for this, so I'm just going to sing a song about theater, and then I'm going to turn my machine off. You don't know what you're doing till you do it. You don't know what you're getting into till you've gotten to it. You never know what fun's about until you're making fun. You don't know what you're doing till you've done one. You don't know where it's at, but you pursue it. You don't know what you're doing till you do, do, do it. I hope reincarnation is a fact and not a myth. Even if I come back named John Smith, cause I love what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. Love what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. Now that I've got you to do it with. Thank you, thank you, Rich. Good night.